Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Okay, Melissa. Julia Lindsay's part one was so amazing that we had to have a part two. We had to break it into two parts because we had so much to talk with her about. And I'm yeah. curious for your thoughts as a secondary person, like what you thought was the most impactful. I mean, everything is, but she's just so good at clearly defining some of these terms that I think, you know, as a secondary person, I don't know them very well, like decodables, but also we talk about high frequency words and sound walls. And, and I think there's, there's confusion about those kinds of words out there generally, not just secondary people. <laughs> um, I have, so yeah, I, think I have to she agree. Just such a good job of like telling us exactly what those words mean. And so it was really helpful for me to just get clarification on, on all of that from her. Mm -hmm. Yep. And in this second part, I know she talks a lot about um, high frequency words and again, like defines pieces, but then we also go a little bit into sound walls because that has been intriguing us a bit on all of the social media sites. We've seen a lot of sound walls as we head into back to school season. So I felt like that was really helpful um, from like a research standpoint. Yep, for sure. Yeah. So without further ado, what do you say? Here we go. We love <laughs> Julia. Dr. Julia <laughs> Lindsay, part two. So I, I kind of want to think about how, I know we've been talking about this idea of, um, you know, you taking what we've learned in foundational skills, practicing it in decoding, and then also incorporating the knowledge building piece that, that we need, you know, however we want to define knowledge building, right? We can think about it in terms of what students are learning in their core curricula. We can think about it um, as um, what they are reading independently and bringing to the table that way. But I'm wondering how knowledge building can support students in decoding difficult decodable texts or even in, in accessing other difficult texts that may not be as decodable. Could you speak about that a bit? Yeah, so we, um, like I was saying, sort of touching on this, um, having children in texts that have a meaning that they're familiar with helps them read individual words, but it also helps them understand the text as a whole. So if you, for example, if you have a decodable text where all of the words are decodable except for the words that are um, about aircraft and you're teaching a lesson on, I don't, well, <laughs> this would be quite a lesson, but if you're teaching a lesson <laughs> on um, the mechanics of an airplane or something like that, um, and then children are able to use some of that knowledge to help them recognize words because those mm -hmm. words are more familiar. And we know that kids recognize familiar words more quickly. Um, we also can think about this uh, in a more holistic way if we think about across a set of texts. So uh, back to this dichotomy that we used to have, learning to read, reading to learn, we know that kids actually build knowledge reading text sets. So there's been some research done on elementary students, not quite as young as we're talking, but um, I think we can 
make some assumptions about how it would work with little kids too, where kids are just given sets of texts that are all conceptually coherent. So they all make sense together. And kids do learn from that. They learn vocabulary. They learn new knowledge. They don't um, just like read these texts and then forget everything. They're able to build knowledge just from reading. So if we think about that with younger kids as well, if we give them a set of texts that has a knowledge building focus and that has vocabulary that's maybe repeated across the text, um, and ideally because they're younger and they need a little bit more scaffolding related to something else we're doing in our, our day, maybe it's science or social studies, or maybe it's something we're doing in another literacy block. Um, but children are able to actually build knowledge across those texts, and therefore they're able to use some of the word recognition knowledge they have gotten in those first couple of texts to read the later texts more and more easily because they've seen those words over and over and over again. Now, just a reminder that like complex vocabulary words, like if you can read the word aircraft and then otherwise you're mostly reading CBC words, that isn't like the ideal way to like learn a word. Um, you know, we can't expect kids to just be like spontaneously learning vocabulary words that they encounter because that's way too many words. Mm -hmm. Children are learning several thousand words a year. Um, and so we can't expect them to be memorizing all of those. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that they should memorize the word aircraft. Ideally, you could help them understand how the letters and the sounds map together there. But just acknowledging that having that familiarity having um, the ability to connect their knowledge and the vocabulary work that they're doing into the text will also support them in recognizing words over time. Makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, really that's helpful. Much sense. The funny thing about a lot of this is that if you talk to somebody who's never taught a child to read before, they often are like, yeah, this is all very sensible. <laughs> yeah, um, right? so it doesn't sound as cool, but I, like, I promise you, this is cool stuff. Um, yeah, just like what was the the term earlier? Multiple criteria text. It's not not the coolest sounding phrase. Not you know? the coolest sounding thing. That's right. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about. You mentioned, you know, in in passing earlier, level text. I'd like to talk about the difference between decodable and level text for those listening out there who are thinking, okay, I've got these, these level texts and, and I, I might've heard that we're trying to get away from level reading, level text, that it's not the most effective way to teach students or to um, help students to advance in their, their reading and become grade level readers. So can you talk a little bit about what the research is saying about decodable versus leveled? Yeah, I was going to throw guided reading in there, too. Might be good. Oh, yeah, guided reading. Because I think guided that. reading is using level text to right. teach. Yes. Okay. So the first thing to know is that um, there is a surprisingly limited amount of research on just, like, texts by themselves. So when we think about... Um, the research that is on text, it's often like combined with an intervention or a curriculum. And then the text is just part of that, right? Because it's really hard to say like, we're gonna just take the text out of this and put a different text in. Um, that's a little bit harder to study. It's a little bit harder to get people on board <laughs> to study that. Um, so a lot of the research on reading that is related to text is not necessarily always able to like hone in on the specific 
impact of texts. And then people often use studies that have to do with text plus intervention or text plus curriculum. And then they use that to talk about um, more broadly, like what is going on, uh, what they use it to talk more specifically rather about what is happening to text. But that's like a little bit, not that it's not true, but just that it's like, you gotta have a little bit of uh, an antenna on that's like dinging like, hmm, are those studies really just about the texts? So just kind of setting the stage for us there. Um, so with leveled texts, there is actually just like a real dearth of research. Like there's really just not a lot there. Um, and that's not to say that there's negative research necessarily, but there's just not very much research. The research that we do have, however, does not necessarily um, show us favorably, uh, make us think favorably about level texts. And some of the reasons why are, first, when you um, take the levels off text and then you run them through like some text analysis software, uh, often it's really hard to tell what level those texts came from. So it might, um, it often is the case that like the only way that you can see like what's the difference between this level and this level is the number of words on a page or the number of words total. And then you might say, okay, well, we, we've all seen reader stamina, like that must matter. But then we, when we look at a different type of research that thinks about text complexity and what makes a text difficult for a child, that is not normally the thing that is the most important. So word or the sentence length, text length, that's not the thing that is like, oh, this is what makes a text complex. Certainly it contributes, but it's not matching. So we have this kind of mismatch between like what the levels are and what we actually think makes a text complicated or not for a child. The other thing to know about level text is that they um, are often, the way that a leveling system works is like proprietary information of a company. So we don't really know necessarily what all of the decisions were that led them to make something this level versus that level. And to me, that's always like a little bit like, Ooh, I would rather know what's yeah. going on. I was going to say, we um, had a teacher on who kind of said that. She's like, well, I don't know how to get them from a level D to an E because I don't know what the difference yeah, is. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember feeling that when I taught, when I taught second grade and, and I did use level text, I remember thinking, well, how, what, like, how do I actually get them to go to the next level? And yep. it was just not clear to me, even though it sounds very linear and clear, it was not. And it, yeah. it, it usually ended up that the students who started at a certain level actually stayed at that level because it was very difficult or, or hovered around that level. I will say it, it, it really, I think what is, is an inequitable practice because it's so, it's so gray as to how either you as the teacher determine students get to the quote next level or that the students get to the next level. Anyway, I just wanted right. to say that I'm a no better do better moment, right? Right. So, so if the text, if it's hard to tell how they were leveled, both from a researcher perspective and just because like the companies don't necessarily explain every choice that they made, which is totally within their right, but then we might think, okay, but it's fine because level text must represent development. That is definitely what I thought when I was teaching. Um, I was like, okay, this is, this is how reading development works. Um, so then you would think, okay, then it must be the case that leveled reading assessments can predict future reading achievement. Mm -hmm. But 
so far, there is not evidence that putting kids in just right style texts positively supports kids' needs or leads to later achievement. Does that mean there will never be evidence of this? No, but that isn't what we're seeing in the research right now. And it isn't, and when we have such a strong theoretical mismatch with what we think happens and what our current understandings are about word recognition and word reading with what's going on in level text, we really have to put up a red flag and be thinking about like, what is the purpose of using these texts in my classroom? What do I think kids are getting out of them? And are they actually getting those things out of them? So I think that it's um, just one of these, uh, it looks so good on paper to say like kids go A, B, C, D, and at A, they can read this type of sentence and they use these types of cues and they can answer these types of comprehension questions. But that isn't actually how it necessarily works. Um, so it, even though it looks really nice and it feels really good to be able to say like, oh, this could move to A to J, it doesn't actually necessarily hold the same meaning. And it doesn't mean that we're um, actually, yeah, sure, A to J, that's definitely some progress, but it doesn't actually mean what we necessarily think it means. The kid has not actually necessarily done what we think that they're doing in order to get up in those higher levels. Uh, so that's kind of like the red flags around level texts. Um, so level texts, like I said, they're based on these proprietary um, guidance, and those are different depending on who's publishing them. And they try to move them in a stair step pattern versus decodables are based on somebody's phonics scope and sequence. Again, that depends. And they're, and they're not based on like these other criteria that level text often are based on. Um, so just because a book is labeled decodable though, unfortunately does not mean it actually is a decodable uh, for one thing. And then as we know, it could also be just a bad one. So decodable text, there have been researchers who've looked at decodable text and they found that a lot of them don't meet a threshold for actually having a high level of decodability. And then again, they also are just bizarre and don't make any sense. So you can't just like say like, I'm going to throw out level text and I'm going to jump into decodables. Um, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And one of those things that you should be thinking about is looking at texts that I already have in my classroom, are there texts that actually do meet a threshold of decodability for certain points in my scope and sequence? If I can't find any, can I find some texts through other resources that do meet a threshold of decodability, which again, maybe around 80% based on me actually auditing some texts and me looking at them because um, let's not just like trust someone else saying it. Let's do the, let's take a look ourselves, request a sample. Most companies will send you a sample that you could take a look at. And then the last option, which I don't necessarily recommend because all of you teachers uh, have 400 jobs already and more stress than anybody could know what to do with. That is the truth. But <laughs> if you feel really compelled, you can write your own. Um, and maybe you'll figure out that you have an act for it. And they could be super short. It could be like, I'm just going to write a decodable riddle. Uh, for my class today that's on the board and they're all going to read this decodable riddle and try to figure out the answer to it. And I'm going to use that as an inroad into supporting this kind of skill. So there's a range of options here, but um, it's not level bad, decodable good. Uh, it's really about the individual text and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, but these are very different types of texts leveled based on some mechanism that a company has, things around the length of a sentence, the 
types of words um, in terms of like, often they do have a lot of high frequency words, the pattern that it's in there. And then decodable text really just based around like what phonics components are in these individual words. I'm glad you brought that up because I see the question a lot Thank of you. like, well, I have, now I have all these leveled books. <laughs> Do I just throw them away? Like I, right. I would hope not. Um, so I'm glad, I'm glad you gave some Yeah, let's there. not, let's not start doing any book burnings or <laughs> putting yeah. books in the garbage can. Um, we have enough of that going on already. We don't need more, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you can, Again, there are level texts that are also decodable, either by happenstance or on purpose. So first of all, do that check for yourself. Mm -hmm. Second, there are a lot of other ways that children can engage in texts. Having kids in a text where you're expecting them to read independently with some prompting and support is not the only way we can have a kid in a text. So what kinds of texts do you already have in your classroom that you think, maybe I should actually use this for a shared reading? or an echo reading, or a highly scaffolded experience where the kid is only reading these like six words that I've already noted they could handle, and I'm reading the rest. These are valid ways for a child to interact with the text, and these are, especially shared reading, is a very well-researched way to support kids in a whole range of early reading behaviors. So to think a little bit more broadly about like how is a child engaging in a text, and what is my purpose for that? If your purpose is okay, I really need to know that children in my classroom can identify the um, author's purpose. You don't need to be doing that in a decodable. <laughs> like, you don't need to do that in a decodable. The author's purpose was to help you decode. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yes, then that's, what, that's what I keep thinking, Julia, is like there's, are, this is the decodable texts are not the only types of text that students are encountering each day. Right. right. So like a, a key takeaway here is really good point. students are not only reading decodable text every day and then doing all the things with those. They should be engaging in a range of texts so that they in the K2 level or K2 space. I'm just going to speak to that um, so that they can build, you know, build knowledge and have access to more complex text and vocabulary. But then also at the same time, they're practicing their foundational skills, their fluent reading in a decodable text. So there's different experiences for different purposes. And I just want to name that and call that out and see if you have anything to add, because I'm sure I didn't say it as eloquently as you could possibly say. <laughs> well, and I like no. what Julia said earlier about telling the students of that, right, that these texts have different purposes. Yeah, like, we don't need to bury again, bury the lead. I don't know why I've used that <laughs> phrase so many times. But, um, I think, yes, you're exactly right. Children should be engaging in tons of texts in a day, and they can be for different purposes, and you can be ex helping kids experience those texts differently. So um, say you are, uh, you know, a first grade teacher, you should almost definitely be doing a read aloud. Um, obviously, there's some days that you can't fit that in or whatever is going on. But um, and doing deep comprehension work with your class during that time. And maybe it's related to science or social studies, or maybe you also do a science text that kids are really working on identifying informational text features in. And then maybe you have a small group that's with you and they're reading a decodable and they're really working on applying what you just taught in phonics in a text. And it's meaningful enough that kids can make some connections and talk about things, but maybe it can't quite like lift up all aspects of reading all at once. And as that's okay. I mean, maybe one day we'll figure out how to do everything at once, but I think that <laughs> something we should just, it's just okay. If 
something is not doing everything. Yeah. Um, it can still be really helpful and it can still be really, really purposeful and meaningful in that particular moment. And then you might have a different small group where the children are um, potentially reading a text that connects more specifically back to that science informational text that you were doing. And you know that, that children in that group would not have a, a prayer of accessing individual words in the text. So you're gonna share the reading with them and your purpose is gonna be more around continuing to build scientific understandings, but maybe you've identified places where they can pull in their word recognition abilities so that they can start noticing that they have the ability to try to access more challenging texts and that they can recognize, okay, it's not just that I can read these like weird paper books that are in the corner over here, but I can use this skill in other contexts as well. So you don't need to just be thinking, okay, I need to go find 500 decodables and that's all <laughs> we're going to do um, because that would probably be a little sad um, <laughs> for the kids in your class. Uh, so let's just recognize that decodables have a purpose as do many other types of texts and we need to be attending to all of those. And that's both the joy and the challenge of teaching, <laughs> doing all that's of right. it all the time. <laughs> and finding yeah. a balance of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Julia, before um, we let you go, can we pick your brain about a few things? <laughs> you, you're very smart, so we want to keep asking you questions. Um, we just have a few things that we, you know, we often see some things on some like Facebook groups and people asking similar questions over and over again. So we wanted to ask you some of them. Uh, one of them is, I think Lori already kind of touched, said she was going to ask you about it, but I stole it. <laughs> it was about high frequency words. Um, I, I know I see like people are like, what are, what are these? Like, is it a heart word? Is it a high frequency word? Is it a sight word? What's the difference between those? Um, what, what, what do those terms mean? And what do I, what do I, how do I teach them or what do I do with them? Lori, is there more to that question that I stole from you? No, I think that's really helpful. I'm just, I'm wondering as, as Julia explains it, if you might be able to give examples of those words too, sure. so people can really just connect with them. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll start out with like, what is a sight word? So in research, when people talk about sight words, what we mean is a word that you can recognize on site. So um, for example, for all of us on the call, orthography is a sight word um, because we've read that word a ton. We can recognize it on site. We don't need to do anything to try to figure out that word. Mm -hmm. uh, and for you know, pretty much all, all of us and everybody listening, if we were to try to read like a physics um, journal article about you know, some phenomena, probably a lot of words would not be sight words, but that doesn't mean yeah. that we're not proficient readers. Um, right. That just means that we don't know those particular words. So the phrase sight word is kind of strange to use in early um, elementary school because it's like, well, what do we mean by that? We mean words that a child can recognize automatically. Okay, so then people think, all right, so they should memorize them. Like that's the way that you know something immediately. Like if you want to play um that card game memory or something you have to just memorize what are all the where are yeah. all the little parts i need that's to what i was thinking julia like cue the flashcards right like right. this is where the flashcards yes. <laughs> and yeah. like the the, the bound flashcards where you're just going through you know you're sending right. them home for right. parents to go through yeah so that's kind of the issue with using that term is that i think we're sending ourselves kind of the wrong message about how word recognition works so 
Instead, what we normally mean when we say high sight word is high frequency words, which are words that occur a lot in text and that you just can't read very many books with if you don't know them. So words like and, be, um, even words like where, why, you know, sometimes included are like look and see. And so we think, okay, so these are sight words. They're really bizarre. We have to just teach them on site. That's why we call them sight words. Wrong. Most of these words are actually very regular if you already know the phonics. The problem is that we need kids to know these words before we can teach them the phonics. So we need a kid to learn the word the before we can teach them digraphs and before we can teach them that this is like kind of a weird exception off, depending on how you pronounce it. So that's where we get into this like sticky situation about like, what do we do? Well, we actually know that the best way is the same as how we teach any other word. So to have kids analyze with you how letters and spellings map onto sounds. And then that will actually support kids in retaining the word better in long-term memory. And because a lot of high-frequency words actually do have stable patterns that we see in other words, it will support their reading and understanding of other words as well, um, which I think we can all agree is way better than just hoping that they memorize something on site, which just isn't how word recognition really works. So that's kind of the difference between sight words and high-frequency words and why I think a lot of people are trying to just say high-frequency words. When in fact, in, a, in the ideal world, we do want high frequency words to become sight words, but not by memorizing, but instead by orthographic mapping and by helping kids really understand how those letters and sounds work. Such a good oh, that's so helpful. <laughs> I know. I, you know what, Melissa, we need like, to do a sound bite of that. I know. <laughs> yeah. Cue okay. the sound bite of, yeah, we'll do that. Um, so one not one last question, because we're still going to ask just a few more, but they're way easier than this one. So what is a sound wall? <laughs> what does the sound wall mean? I'm seeing this again all over the social media sites that um, Melissa and I are in, like um, the Facebook groups and on Instagram. It's like, oh, look at my sound wall. I have no idea what this means. So um, and maybe it's just because I'm older, but I feel like I, maybe it's a new term that teachers are using. And, and since I haven't taught in a few years. I don't know. So can you enlighten us? Do you know what a sound wall is? Yes. So general, I mean, generally people use it to mean different things as we do with every word, but um, most of the time a sound wall is where a teacher has grouped words based on some common sound that they have instead of grouping words based on a letter. So instead of like having an a word wall, that's like the alphabet. And then they put words underneath each letter, they might have a sound wall where they have um, sounds that they're learning in phonics and in the spelling relationships that they might see in words. So um, this is one way that I think people are trying to attend to the fact that we're, and you've kind of heard me say that we're trying to think more about sound spelling relationships and not just like letter sound relationships, not just like the very most basic um, noticings. The strange thing about sound walls is that most people are, um, probably think that there's like been a lot of research on them, right? Because they're like, oh, this is this cool process, this cool Everyone's thing doing that it. <laughs> yeah, it's hot. it's hot right now. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe absolutely possible. But unfortunately, right now we haven't done a single study on sound halls. So we really can't say like, this is a great practice or not. Um, is it worth trying out? Sure. If that floats your boat, totally. Is it going to change everything in your classroom? I don't know. 
because we just don't have any research yet about this sort of thing. And so this is a place where we have to get a little bit, again, just like kind of use our personal judgment and our knowledge as educators over time about, um, you know, things that come up that are hot and exciting and kind of question like whether or not it matches what you're doing in your classroom and what you've learned about actual research and scientific understandings of reading. And if this feels like a good fit for you, more power to you. And if it doesn't, and you wanna wait and see if some research comes out, also more power to you. Um, I think that, you know, we don't necessarily have to take in every single recommendation that we see from people on social media who are saying that they adhere to the science of reading. Um, we can do our own kind of knowledge building ourselves of, you know, reading books that are out there or um, going to websites of reputable people and researchers uh, like Mel Duke's website, for example, is a great resource. Um, I am actually writing a book that should be out in the spring. Um, so I would love for you to read that. I don't think we knew out. that. I'm really excited. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> new information. This is my first little announcement. Um, so, that is so exciting. Thank you. We're, yeah. we're going to have you. Yeah. What Do you want to pump it up? So because the whole goal here, right, is like, let's get away from some of the noise. What does research actually say? What do expert practitioners actually know and say? And let's mm. use that to build our practices and our curriculum and try to shelter ourselves from all of the rest of it. And as I said, that is not at all a shot at sound walls. If you want to try it out, go for it. It's more just to remind us that just because something is appearing in like the hot topics doesn't actually mean that it's necessarily got like decades of research behind it. Um, so just yeah. knowing that that's something to keep your eye on. And it seems like it's generally a better idea than a word wall that was alphabetical, right? Because like in that yeah. case, like circle and cat are right. together and they have totally different sounds. So it seems like a slightly better idea than a regular word wall. But like you said, try it and see what happens. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I also think that begs like 20, 27 more questions. Like what, <laughs> what research is there on word walls that then sure. might be able to be consumed? <laughs> like we don't. We're not going to get into all that right now, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I would actually love to hear from a teacher who's maybe using sound walls and, and just hear how he or she is using it and how it's supporting or maybe confusing students. I'm, I'm just curious, like, as you said, Julia, we don't know, um, but you know, I am seeing it as a, as a hot thing out there. And I love, I actually just love teachers being so excited to set up their classrooms and prepare for their students. It's just mm -hmm. such a, a fun time of the year right now. And especially because kids are actually going back to school um, and, and we'll be there. <laughs> so it's, it's fun to see, you know, the, that maybe sound walls are catching on because this, it, we're just excited to get kids back in front of us. And, you know, I, if any teachers are listening, uh, let us know, like, let us know how sound walls are going. <laughs> uh, Melissa, the, the email addresses. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> Melissa is in charge of the like, emails. Whose email address? She's, she must be asking it for someone else. <laughs> so, Julia, um, what would you like to do first? Do you want to do a piece of advice to those listening first? Or would you like to do this fun new thing that I found called Poddex, where I pick a card or two, and then you ask, answer a really fun question or prompt that pops up? Oh, let's do that. That's fun. Okay. Again. <laughs> okay. And get your advice so, ready. Yeah, get it ready. Okay, and they're it, it's not always about literacy, just to cue this up. Okay. 
Probably definitely right. not about literacy. Probably not about literacy. <laughs> All right. So we're going to get to know you, Julia. Here we go. Um, I'm going to give you two options, okay? I am curious. What did you learn about yourself this quarter? Okay. Or discuss your favorite podcast. And we can extend into book if you're not a podcast geek. And you don't have to say ours. Obviously. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. Hmm. All right, I'll go with the, what did I learn about myself this quarter? Because that sounds like an exciting one. Um, and I'll just extend that to what did I learn about myself during the pandemic? How it's all we... just one big. It, yeah, it's <laughs> like one big quarter of life. I like that. Yeah, and I think that, Something that I learned about myself that I did not necessarily, I think I knew it in the back of my head, but I didn't have it right in the front is I love being outside in nature. I just get so much joy from going on a hike, taking my dog and like going out in the woods, wandering around. And I think that that's just like, it just really, it really helps me in the pandemic to be able to like go out into a beautiful setting and really feel like okay I'm like in nature I think it's just like such I at that time I was in Ann Arbor and we have a lot of like forested (laughs) woody areas um and a lot of lakes and that sort of thing so for a golden retriever that was the tops (laughs) um yeah a reminder like I've got something green today yeah yeah (laughs) um it does I think make us happier so there you go it's a good one. Thank you. Thanks for choosing <laughs> choosing one too. That that's a little bit more personal. We appreciate that. Yeah. All right. So wrap us up here, Julia, with um, one piece of advice for our listeners. Just one. Well, um, yeah, maybe two. You can step <laughs> in two. <laughs> no, I'll try to. I'll try to limit myself. Um, okay. I think my big piece of advice is if you are investigating the science of reading, if you're investigating the practices that you've chosen to use in your classroom or that your district or um, principal are having you use in your classroom, I would say always take yourself back to thinking, what is the purpose of what I'm doing? Um, What is it that I'm hoping to accomplish with this practice or this lesson? And is this actually leading kids to this purpose and this goal? Um, And so you can use informal assessment just observing what's happening, looking at kids' work. You can also use formal assessment to gauge that, but just always kind of returning to yourself of like, if my goal is word recognition, are these practices leading to that? If my goal is knowledge building, are my practices leading to that? Mm -hmm. Um, Likely you have many, 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 many goals (laughs) at every time of day, Uh, but trying to really hone yourself into what, if what I'm doing is matching my purpose and getting my kids to goals. And I think that might help cut some of the noise. It also might help cut some of the fluff where you think, um, you know what, that practice is maybe just for fun and it's not getting us anywhere. And I can make a practice fun that is getting us somewhere. So just returning to what is my purpose and are kids getting there? Um, I think is a good kind of reflective way to think about really distilling all of what's out there into what's actually happening with you and your students. So good. (laughs) And it's so true. Yeah. I feel like it goes along with the theme of our conversation today, right? What is the purpose of what we're doing with all of these types of texts, with our practices? So thank you for, for 
really bringing us full circle. <laughs> Happy to do it. I'm so fine to be here and to talk with the two of you. Yeah, we are. We're grateful you gave us so much time. We actually in the pre-call afterwards, Melissa and I were like, we have to we have to book like a good 90 minutes or more <laughs> because she like we knew we could just talk. To, I mean, we could keep going. So thank you for giving <laughs> us so much of your time today. Yes. And we know that all of our literacy lovers out there will just adore hearing everything that you have to say. And it will really help to clarify some things that are happening out in the world right now as we all head back to school. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm you so can come back in. And talk when your book is out, please. Absolutely. Yes, please let us know. <laughs> yeah, we would love to. Let us know when it comes out. We'll, we'll order it and then we'll talk about it with you. Love it. Sounds very exciting. I'm sure a lot of the same stuff will appear in the book. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. <Plus> more. <laughs> Thank you Excellent. so much, Julia. It was so nice having you here. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Have Bye. a great day. Thank you so much for listening, literacy lovers. Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. Yep. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Most of them are at Literacy Podcast. Yes. And please, please, please reach out to us. Melissa, what's our email address? Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com is our email address. And we love getting emails from you all. And <laughs> Lori we and really I really read them. Yeah, and we, we really, really respond. Fun. We just love we love when you all reach out and we, we get to have conversations with you. So please, please email yep. us. Let us know what you're thinking, what you're thinking about literacy, what you're thinking about ideas for us to podcast about. Yes, ideas for <laughs> podcasting, anything. We we love to hear from you what you liked, what you want. Yeah, We're here for you. Mostly y'all are asking questions, which is great. Yes. <laughs> we don't mind that either. Yes. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. Thank you, everybody.